So today's scripture reading can be found in Philippians 1, 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let me uh, pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for this opportunity to wrestle with you. I love that from Terry's faith story. I pray that each one of us would wrestle with you through your word right now in this moment as we hear this message. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're starting a brand new sermon series today. So this is a great week. If this is your first week at Cornerstone, you're kind of getting in at the kind of the pilot episode. And the, the series is called uh, Discipleship 101. I'm not very creative when it comes to names. But we're thinking about, like, what is a, a disciple? Now, that's not a word that we, we use very often in today's kind of modern lingo. When you think of a disciple, you probably think of someone who adheres to a specific religious teacher or a philosopher. So maybe Jesus or Muhammad or a Buddha or uh, Confucius, one of the uh, kind of the big name teachers. Or maybe even think further back like Plato, Socrates. Now, disciple just means student or learner. Now, at cornerstone, we kind of define a disciple as a follower of Jesus, but that word itself just means learner or student. Now, in our culture today, 2017, being a disciple, specifically of Jesus, of Christianity, is becoming less and less popular, especially for my generation. Uh, I have a confession to make. I am a millennial. I fall in that kind of 20 to 35 age range. And I wanted to share kind of some statistics with you. According to a Pew Research Center study, more than one-third of millennials are not affiliated with a religion, which is double the amount of baby boomers who identify as unaffiliated. Additionally, another Pew study indicated that about one quarter of American millennials say they attend religious services on a weekly basis, and about half say they believe in God with absolute certainty, compared with seven in ten Americans in the silent and baby boomer generations. So clearly, previous generations took part in kind of Christian or religious church services more than my generation. Now, I read a study by two Harvard Divinity students that kind of theorized why this might be. And they wrote this study called why, uh, How We Gather. And they say that my generation, millennials, instead of finding like community and purpose and encouragement in a church setting, we're finding it in more kind of individualized or distinct kind of to-yourself uh, ways. For example, you might find the same sense of community or similar sense in Alcoholics Anonymous or just getting dinner with your friends or a running club or yoga or even CrossFit. Instead of, instead of going to church to hear a sermon, 
We listen to TED Talks, like we click on the YouTube, or we we listen to podcasts about things that we want to learn about, and that kind of fills where that normally that sermon gap would be filling. And instead of finding purpose in kind of the mission of a church, we find purpose in things like Big Brother, Big Sister, Race for America. We still volunteer with churches, but we're not afraid to volunteer with a variety of church movements, kind of interfaith, a variety of religions according to this study. Now, I agree that my generation is looking for spiritual fulfillment elsewhere. And I actually think they're finding a sense of spiritual fulfillment elsewhere. But I believe that they're also missing something. That my generation is missing out on something that, as great as some of those communities are, can't be replicated by them. And so in this sermon series, Discipleship 101, I'm going to try to explain what that is, what they're missing. And I'm also going to try to show why specifically following Christ Jesus is, is worth it through the church. Being part of this community instead of some other community out there. Now as we talk about disciples, I want to begin by focusing on an early disciple. A guy named Saul. Now Saul is a very unlikely disciple. If you read the Bible, he's not in the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, he doesn't show up in those. He shows up in the book of Acts. Now Jesus, kind of give you context if you're not super familiar with the Bible, uh, Jesus has gone through his earthly ministry. He has died, he has risen again, and then he has ascended into heaven. And now there's the, the formation of this new kind of religious community where people are finding purpose and, and, and community, and it's called the church. And the church is founded, kind of put together to worship Christ and to follow the teachings of Jesus. But our guy Saul, he is part of a Jewish religious sect that does not approve and is willing to persecute and actually kill Christians. In fact, in the book of Acts, we read about the very first Christian martyr. That's someone who, who was unashamed of their faith in Jesus and died for it. And it says that, that as they were stoning uh, him to death, as they were stoning Stephen to death, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, Saul was a Pharisee. He was one of these religious elite, and he approved of the death of the very first Christian. Not only that, but he was like zealous for it. He was happy. He was, he was angry against Christianity. He did not like Christians. So he wasn't just like agnostic. Oh, there could be a God. You know, he had his faith, the Jewish system, and he was out to destroy Christianity. In fact, he went through Jerusalem after this and began to drag men and women out of their homes and throw them into prison. And, and, and this next verse, Acts 9, 1 and 2, kind of gives you an idea of how just mad he was. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I don't think I've ever encountered someone who's just like so angry, just breathing out murderous threats. And he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, 
so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was kind of Christians before they were called Christians, they were called the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so here's Saul, he's going to round up, uh, he's rounded up the Christians in Jerusalem, and now he wants to go to Damascus. And this is what happens on his way. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I want you to just imagine for a moment. Imagine that you are on this long journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's about 150 miles. Maybe you're uh, walking this journey. It's going to take four to five days. It's dusty out. It's hot. It's It's the Middle East. You're sweaty, and you're coming around a bend, and suddenly there's, like, flashing light. And they don't have, like, strobe lights back in that culture. So this is, you probably think it's lightning, or uh, it's the middle of the day, so... Well, what happens? He discovers that this, this is God. He's being confronted with God's presence, so he falls to the ground. He's in the dirt. He's, he's so afraid he's biting his lip, and blood is coming out. Imagine that's happening to you. But even all this isn't the most scary thing. <laughs> the most scary thing is the voice. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, who speaks like that? It's not going to be some other, like, person from that time period. No, it's God. And so what do you say to God? Well, in, in Saul's case, like, he kind of asks for a clarification. He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. And it's in this moment that Saul's whole life changes. It's in this moment that he realizes that everything he's been doing up to this point has been leading down the wrong path. That he's going down the wrong road. And that instead of actually honoring God with his kind of religious zealousy, he's been attacking God. And God is going to win. You know what Saul does? He changes his life. See, and this this actually costs him something. He was a Pharisee. He was well-educated. He was respected. His career was booming. He was the leader of the Inquisition. And suddenly he realizes it's time to give those things up, those things that I found so much value in but we're, are leading me down the wrong road. Now, I don't know about you or why you're here today. Maybe it's your first time. and I don't know where you would put yourself in kind of a, a category of believes in God, does not believe in God, hates God. Maybe you would call yourself, you know, like a semi-disciple. I like spiritual things. Or maybe you're like a super unlikely disciple because you don't believe in God at all. And I want to challenge you with a question. What if you've missed something? What if you've missed something that is so important to your whole life? 
that if, that if you realize, it will change everything about you. See, Saul realized that he had missed something. And God confronted him with what he had missed. And I want to challenge you tonight, tonight to begin to reexamine your life and to discover if maybe, maybe there is a God and maybe this God has revealed himself to us as the person of Jesus Christ. And that maybe, like, this is true. Maybe Christianity is true and that Jesus really did die and rise from the grave and that if we put our faith and trust in him, we get to rise again too. Man, if that's true, that changes everything, doesn't it? I want you to ask, who are you, Lord? Because I believe if you do that, Jesus will answer. <laughs> it's me. It's Jesus. Several years ago, I read this book. It's called The Unlikely Disciple, a center semester at America's holiest university. It's written by Kevin Roos. This isn't really a book that I'm recommending, but it's like a very fascinating, interesting read. It's the story of a Brown University student who spends a semester at Liberty University. Now, Brown is an Ivy League school. It's located in Providence, Rhode Island. And on the, the inside cover of the flap, it says, you know, like the student body at Brown University is ultra liberal, <laughs> doesn't believe in God. At Liberty University, on the other hand, it's, it's known for being like a conservative Christian Baptist school. It's located in Lynchburg, Virginia. And so Kevin, he spends, he, so he goes from Brown and he spends his semester at Liberty, just kind of trying to live as a Liberty student. And if you read the book, you'll find that he does not become a Christian, but I really respect that he's willing to kind of immerse himself in the kind of the Christian culture to learn about Christianity. Like the book opens with him praying. <laughs> he goes to Old Testament classes. He goes to New Testament classes. He learns about who this Jesus is. I hope that you will kind of take the path, if you don't know Jesus, of, of becoming your own investigative reporter. Go about your own investigation. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Christ? We have some resources back at the Welcome Center. We have The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, The Reason for God. These are some great books that just kind of talk about who is this Jesus and can we really trust him? Can we really believe in him? Is he worth believing? See, Saul realized that he had been wrong. He realized that Jesus is true and it changes everything. It changes his life. Saul becomes Paul, a disciple of Jesus. Now, Saul, his, his, his life has changed. He goes from persecuting Christians, from persecuting those that follow Jesus, to like being a radical follower of Jesus, preaching the name of Jesus, being an outspoken witness for Jesus, not ashamed, not afraid to get beaten up, to get hurt by others. He's actually an apostle. So the, 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 he's not one of those like 12 disciples, if you were wondering about that. I use disciple as like a follower of Christ. He's really called an apostle, which in the New Testament are the people that Jesus appointed to, he kind of gave them special authority to teach and lead the church. But he dedicates his life to not just 
to not just telling others about Jesus, but like telling the world about Jesus. He goes to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. He breaks down like race barriers. And he goes and tells people about Christ. In the process, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he loses everything. Even, even in some sense, a little bit of his Jewish identity. <laughs> he goes from being Saul to Paul. Now, Saul is like the, the Hebrew version of his name. Paul is the Greek version. But he begins to go by Paul. because He wants people to identify himself with the, his, his mission to, to reach the world, to reach the non-Jewish people with the message of Jesus. And God sends Paul all the way to ancient Macedonia. And I'm going to show you a map here on the screen. So this is a, this is a map of the ancient world in the time of Paul. And, and God sends him to Philippi. So you can kind of see that it's up, up towards the top of the map. That's really far away from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which is down on the bottom right. Now, Philippi is a, it's a Roman city. It's famous for lots of trade. The Ignatian Way goes through it. It's also known for its strong sense of patriotism and nationalism. This is because the Roman emperor would kind of send Roman soldiers there to, to retire. And so they had a, a big ex-military force there. And it's, it's so like not, it's so not Christian, it's so like not Jewish that there's not even 10 Jewish men. So there's no synagogue in Philippi. You need at least 10 Jewish men. And that's usually the synagogue was where Paul went to kind of tell people about Jesus. But instead he goes to the river. And in Acts chapter 16, he goes down to the river and he begins to preach to the women that were there praying. These women are God-fearers. That means they had some interest in kind of the Jewish faith and honoring God. And he begins to preach and tell them about Jesus Christ. And it says a woman named Lydia becomes the very first believer in Philippi. And this ministry begins to take off. And not long after that, uh, 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 Paul is being tailed by this, this demon-possessed girl. This is like a crazy story. He's being tailed by her, and he, he casts the demon out of her because he's so frustrated with her. But then her owners, who are kind of renting her out to, to foretell prophecies and other things like that, they get angry, and the city gets angry, and they beat and arrest Paul, and they throw him in prison. But Paul is a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus takes care of his own. <laughs> he sends an earthquake, and an earthquake kind of demolishes the prison, and he has an opportunity to run free, but instead he stays there. He does like the, the, the unobvious thing. There's an open door, and he does not walk through it. But that leads to the salvation of the jailer. See, if they had escaped, the jailer would have lost his life. They, they tell the jailer about Christ, and he comes to know Christ as his Savior. Now, I'm telling you these things about the history of Philippi because this gives you a glimpse of the history that Paul has with them. He's loved them. He's known them for a long time. He, he probably visited there in about 50 A.D., and he's writing this letter to the Philippians in about 60 to 62 A.D. He has had a decade-long relationship with them. So in verse 1 of Philippians, the very first word, when he says Paul, they know exactly who he is. He is the founder of their church who is willing to get publicly beaten for them 
to be stripped naked. See, Paul loves the church at Philippi, and the church at Philippi loves him. And so he is going to explain to them what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I, begin, I believe that he begins to tell them all the way in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. See, a disciple is a willing servant of Jesus. That's what we are if, we're, if we call ourselves Christians. We're willing servants of Jesus. Now, this word for servant uh, can also be translated uh, slave. It means slave. Now, in the ancient world, like as Americans, we have a lot of negative connotations with slaves and slavery. It was an evil institution in America, and it was certainly an evil institution back then in certain cultures. But in Paul's culture, if you're the slave of an important master, that could actually give you some status. A man named Moses, a man named Joshua, the prophets in the Old Testament, they're all called servants of God, and they're the ones who are leading their people. And the type of servant that Paul is calling himself is really a bond servant. See, people in that culture could sell themselves into servitude for about six years. That was like the maximum in ancient Judaism. And on the seventh year, they had to be released. They could sell themselves or even a family member into servitude to pay off a debt. But at the end of those seven years, they had a choice to make. They could go free or they could say, I want to be a servant of this family, of this master forever because this is a good master. And the master would take this servant to the doorframe of his house. He'd put his ear against the doorframe. He would take an awl, which is kind of like something you use to poke holes through leather, and he would poke a hole through his ear. And that, that marked that man, that piercing marked that man or woman as a servant of that master for the rest of their lives. See, Paul has been pierced. Paul has been pierced by his master, Jesus. And now he's willing to follow him for the rest of his life. Now maybe you're here and you're thinking, I would never become a Christian. I would never follow Jesus. This is fascinating. I, I like learning. It's interesting to learn about ancient cultures. But man, I am, I am not in this to be a disciple. So I have a question for you. What would it take to pierce your heart? <laughs> What would it take to get through to the inside? What do you need to hear? See, I don't think what convinced Saul to become Paul and follow Christ, I don't even think it was like the blinding light. I think that played a huge part in it. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, well, if I saw like a miracle from heaven, then I would believe in God. But if all Saul saw was the flashing light, and that was it, he would have gone on his way, wouldn't he? See, it's the voice. It's the person. It's Jesus who comes to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, I think Saul, as he got to know Jesus, that transformed him. He was willing to become a servant because he realized 
just who Christ is. In fact, I want to show you a little bit later in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. It describes who this Jesus is. Jesus, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Who does Paul say he is? He says, I'm a servant. Who does Jesus say he is? He says, I'm a servant. Now, Paul serves by sharing the gospel with the world. How does Jesus serve? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Paul was willing to give up everything to be a servant disciple because he met the servant Savior. See, Jesus was our servant. Jesus was Paul's servant before he ever met him. Because he was willing to go to the cross to, to pay the penalty for, for Saul slash Paul's sins. And if you ever put your faith in Christ, you can say with confidence, Christ went to that cross to pay the penalty for my sins. See, Jesus, he's our bondservant. He's the one who willingly entered servitude on our behalf to save us from our sins. I really enjoyed hearing Terry's faith story. He kind of talked about what it means to be like this servant follower of Jesus, right? Did you notice like in his faith story, he grew in his desire, he grew in his ability to serve God as he, as he grew in a relationship with God. And he, you know, he says he was six years old. Doesn't exactly remember, you know, when he came to know Christ. But God took him when he was six and built him into a willing servant, now, Terry, I was actually four when I came to know Christ, so I have you beat by like two years, so I'm really uh, your elder. I want to tell you that story briefly. <laughs> I was, yeah, so I was four. I don't really remember the context very well. Be my, I have three older brothers, so they were all Christians, so I probably wanted to be a little bit like them. Good reason to become a Christian. <laughs> Uh, and I remember coming into our living room, and we had this old blue couch, like an antique couch now. My mom was sitting on it, and I said, hey, I want to become a Christian. And so we knelt down beside the couch, uh, you know, uh, bowed our heads, closed our eyes, <laughs> clasped our hands, and we began to pray. My mom said a prayer, and I, I followed her line by line. And one of the phrases, pretty much the only thing that sticks out to me, that she said something about serving and trusting God forever. And as I was praying, like that hit me, like, wow, <laughs> that is a big commitment when you're four years old. I'm going to serve and trust God forever? I mean, I probably have another 18, 20 years to go. That's a, that's a long time to serve God. And so I, I got up and I walked into the next room and I told my oldest brother, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. <laughs> And I explained to him, uh, I don't want to be a Christian because 
Now, this is four-year-old logic, so you're going to have to follow me with this. I had read so many picture Bibles, and I had saw pictures of slaves. And in those pictures, they were all bald, and I did not want to be bald. So I was like, all right, done with Christianity. I don't want to be bald. <laughs> My brother's like, no, no, Christians aren't slaves. <laughs> Keep the faith. And so I kept the faith. But actually, I think my, bro- my oldest brother lied to me. That's pretty typical, right, of like older siblings lying to younger siblings. I think he lied to me because I do think to be a Christian is to say, I'm going to be a willing servant of Jesus. I'm going to be a slave. But the great thing is, is that the one that we kind of indenture ourselves to is a good master. See, we're all enslaved to something in this life. <laughs> Maybe you're a slave, enslaved to alcohol or cigarettes or, or video games or like social media, what other people think of you. You're, engaged, you're, you're enslaved to like those little hearts. <laughs> we're all serving something. Maybe it's our career. You want to climb the corporate ladder and make as much money and have as much power as you can. Maybe you're enslaved to experiences. You want to travel the world. You want to have a good life. So at the, at the end of your life, when you lay your head on that pillow, you can say, wow, look at all those things I did and accomplished and enjoyed. Maybe you're enslaved to the idea of your family. That you have to have like the best, most perfect family. Maybe you're enslaved to that idea. See, we're all following a master, aren't we? And Jesus is the master that says, I'm going to enter into your world, and I'm going to set you free. So if you follow me, like, life is free. I'm a good master. I'm never going to do anything that's bad for you. It might not be easy, but I'll set you spiritually free, and I will set you eternally free if you trust me. See, to become a Christian, you have to become a slave. Not really a popular message for our kind of kickoff sermon. But all saints are servant disciples. Now, when I say the word saint, maybe some of you are currently Catholic or you come from a Catholic background. Like, I don't mean those that the Pope has canonized. When I say saint, That's how the ESV translates to all God's holy people. The ESV says to all God's saints. See, to be a saint, you're just a follower of Jesus. You can be a saint just by saying, I'm going to follow you, Christ, like confessing your sins and repenting and putting your faith in him. To be a saint is to say, I am not my own master. Jesus is my master. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Then Paul actually goes on to define what the church is. He says, together with the overseers and the deacons. The overseers are the elders. At Cornerstone, uh, you've already met two of the elders. You met Andy and Terry. And our, our other elder is John Rawls back there at the sound booth. And I'm also one of the elders. We're charged with like the spiritual oversight, with the teaching, with the prayer of the church. And when it talks about deacons, it's talking about uh, servant leaders 
who are tasked with kind of like logistical people care needs, making sure that the, the people are cared for. And I can't point out any deacons tonight because we're actually in the process of getting our very first deacons. But you know the word deacon? It also means servant. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, together with the overseers and the servants. See, I believe everyone in the church, even the elders, our philosophy of ministry says the elders are supposed to kind of model the servant leadership of Christ Jesus. So my acts of service, preaching, teaching, that looks different than kind of someone who's taking care of the building or going to visit the sick. But we're all serving together, and it's not supposed to just be the leadership. It's supposed to be everyone. We all want to model what it means to be a servant disciple. Now, in the book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons by Tabidi and Abwili, he says a good deacon, a good kind of servant, is like a good waiter, like a good server at a restaurant. Now, I, recently, when we were on vacation this summer, we, we had a bad server. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience where you go to a restaurant, you want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, because you don't want to walk out of there and be like, wow, that was terrible. We were down in Virginia Beach, and we went to this restaurant, Monica and me and a friend and his wife, known for, like, creative burgers. And one of these burgers was supposed to have this, like, breaded, fried, really, like, juicy, big tomato on it. Like, that was, like, the headline part of the burger. And they brought out his burger to my friend Michael, and it was, like, paper thin. <laughs> he wasn't sure there actually was a tomato in the, the bread. It was just, like, breaded, fried, whatever. And so he didn't eat a sandwich, and he just waited there for the server to come and the waiter to come, but they never came. And finally, the, the busboy came by, and he's like, can, can you go get me a tomato? Like, he showed him, like, he's like, this is not how it's supposed to be. And so the busboy went back to, to the kitchen. I think he just, like, took a knife and cut a tomato, <laughs> and he just brought it back out, a tomato, and gave it to him. And Michael, my friend, was like, no, <laughs> this is not... The, the, the breaded tomato I was, I was promised. And so he's like, can you get your manager? And so the manager came over. She was able to get him the correct breaded tomato. But then after that, you'd think everything was kind of taken care of. It was like uh, this like rotating like service. Every two minutes they came by and were like, are you okay? <laughs> How's everything doing? How's your heart? It was like two minutes, then the waiter came, and then the cook came, and then it cycled back to the busboy. That was not great service. We don't want saints that are too unattentive and then overly attentive. We don't want to be that kind of people. We want to serve each other genuinely and lovingly and attentively, but not overly attentively. Now, a positive example on Wednesdays at, at Cornerstone, there's a group of us, and talk to me if you're interested. We get breakfast at Paul's Diner in Westford, and we talk about this upcoming sermon, the upcoming text, and we have one of the best waitresses there I've ever had. Her name is Heidi. Uh, she is so friendly, and she loves us. She remembers our orders. She gets us coffee. She tries to convince me to get coffee and then makes fun of me when I'm tired. And I'm like, no, I don't want coffee, but you need coffee. She shows us pictures of her, her like black lab, tells us about her family, and asks about our lives. That's the kind of servant we should all be to each other at a church. 
as followers of Jesus because we have the, the greatest servant who ever lived, laying down his life day by day for each one of us. So what does a, a servant disciple look like? Well, it begins by just recognizing our true master is the servant savior. It's Christ Jesus. See, to be one of these servants, you have to, to know Christ. And then what do we do? Well, we willingly sacrifice for each other. We're willing to give up time and energy and be inconvenienced so that we can love and care for each other. Even giving up finances, letting, letting people borrow each other's cars, helping each other with yard work or housework. I'm just saying that because I need help. <laughs> and finally, we form friendship and love each other. Paul says in chapter 2 to the Philippians, he says, Dear friends, dear friends. See, Paul loves the Philippians, and the Philippians love him. If you're new to Cornerstone, this is your first week. I hope that one of the reasons you'll stay and come back week after week is so that you'll have an opportunity to form friendships with the people sitting in this room. And the truth is, none of us are very good at this in our own strength. See, we're all servant disciples by God's grace. What does he say in verse 2? He says, grace and peace to you from God. It's only God's strength that helps us be good servants to each other, to be good disciples of Christ Jesus. See, it's because we've tasted grace. It's because we've tasted like our sins being washed away. It's, it's because we've tasted true freedom that we're then willing to give up our freedom for each other. Did you know that if you believe in Christ Jesus, like his life is somehow mysteriously, beautifully like placed over your life? <laughs> Jesus has a perfect service record. And if you put your faith in him and confess your sins, like you get the perfect service record of Christ on your life. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the screw-ups, he doesn't see the mess-ups, he doesn't see all the mistakes, all those times and moments of selfishness. <laughs> He sees Jesus. And then we begin to walk in that. We begin to like live it out. Oh, well, if I'm already unselfish in Christ, I, let me just try to do that day by day. What's holding you back from becoming a servant disciple? Are you afraid to lose your freedom? Like live free or die. Well, what if you have to die in order to live free? What if you have to die to yourself in order to live free in Jesus. My big idea, my closing thought is just come follow the servant Savior. He doesn't ask you to carry a cross that he has not already carried. He has borne the full weight of our sin on that cross. And that's what makes me want to follow Christ. That's what makes me want to be a disciple of Jesus. Come and follow the servant savior. We have one already. <laughs> let, me, let me pray. <laughs> we can have an altar call if you want. Uh. <laughs> I love his enthusiasm. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the disciples, the, the, the old ones and the young ones. Thank you for those that want to 
to follow you and that find joy in this place. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and we love your son, Christ Jesus. It's, it's him that we want to serve, and we're so grateful for how he has served us. Heavenly Father, we recognize that one of the ways we serve you is with our money, and we're about to take an offering. Lord, would we use those funds wisely? Would we accomplish your purposes with them? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.